You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse, among the cloistered confines of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author, and award-winning historian, John Fia. Welcome, everyone, to episode 11 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad that you have joined us. The voice you have heard at the top of the episode, of course, is my partner in crime and the producer of the podcast, Drew Dearly Hermeling. Drew, we are in some new digs now here at the WVMM studios. It's making me feel like we're actually really radio people. It's funny. I was actually a DJ in this very studio back when I was an undergrad. So I think I've come a long way since I was the long-haired wannabe rock star spinning obscure indie tunes for college radio. Yeah, I remember those days, Drew. I remember the ponytail especially. Uh, Maybe we could spend a whole podcast (laughs) talking about that. So what have you been up to lately? Well, I I recently traveled to Dartmouth to attend a, a wonderful conference on indigenous archives in the digital age. And as a young scholar slash grad student, I always love the opportunity to network with leaders in my field while also spending some time thinking about my future research. And as someone who cares a lot about recovering American Indian voices from the early American past, I jump at any opportunity to add another tool into my methodological toolbox, so to speak. But while I was there, I also had the chance to take a guided tour of the wonderful Orozco murals in the Hood Library on campus. Uh, These were painted by uh, the famous Mexican muralist Jose Orozco. And their wonderful, in many ways, controversial depiction of the history of Mexico, starting with its indigenous past and ending with Mexican industrialization. So I'd rate the murals a must-see for anyone traveling through that part of New Hampshire. But most importantly, it wouldn't be a conference if I didn't post some nice jargon-filled tweets, which always make you happy. I know. Yeah, I get, I get, I get this tweet from from Drew telling me like to get ready. You know, here comes the. Here comes the uh, scholarly language or whatever. So, so again, we've, we did this in season one in one episode. But let me read two of Drew's tweets coming from this <laughs> conference. And then I'm going to ask him to translate this. Because the way of Improvement Leads Home audience is, are, we are not, the audience is not scholars. So, Drew, you're going to have to do a better job <laughs> of speaking to normal people. Especially when you write tweets like, quote, what would it mean for the indigenous codes to create Cree plus sign plus sign as an indigenous coding language? Or, quote, need to imbue the silicon substrate with indigenous ghosts, unquote. Uh, please, Drew, for those of us who follow you on Twitter, you know, what does this mean? What does this stuff mean? Those were both in response to a particularly interesting presentation by Jason Edward Lewis, who is a Cherokee, Hawaiian, and Samoan computational arts professor. Okay, I'm I'm already confused. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. He's an indigenous man who is also a, a computational arts professor at Concordia University in Montreal. And 
essentially he's discussing the ways in which we can potentially make uh, digital tools more accessible to indigenous folks. But he was discussing the way in which computational tools, smartphones, computers, are in their very nature programmed in a way that is counterintuitive to indigenous thinking. Specifically, all computers operate through a binary way of thinking. You're either on or off, right? And that's why anytime you see code, it's one zero zero one 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 zero zero. That's, you know, that's binary. And so this is the challenge that anyone who wants to use digital tools for an indigenous audience has to overcome. So he was making a play on the coding language C++ and calling it Cree++ and trying to imagine what an indigenous coding language would look like. I, I don't know. It seemed very straightforward to me. Once again, more compelling radio here on the <laughs> Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast from our resident graduate student slash producer, Drew <laughs> Hermeling. Speaking of radio, we have Michaela Mummer in the room with us. She is our studio producer. And and Drew, after last episode, having to deal with both of us, Michaela actually decided to stick around and come back, back for a second episode. <laughs> How's it going, Michaela? It's going really well. The semester has started up, been off to a good start, busy as always, but I kinda, I'm the kind of person that likes being busy, so I kind of don't mind that as much. Got a lot of classes, some gen eds thrown in there, some comm and some uh, marketing classes because I'm a marketing minor, so just trying to keep up with the semester and keep organizing all that good stuff. My daughter's a freshman, and she's... I'm trying to tell her it just gets progressively busier as you become a sophomore, a junior, a senior. And my daughter's in the Bouncing Bears class in uh, daycare. All so. right, Nelsa, <laughs> yeah, the, for- the fourth member of our broadcast team. Please help us keep this podcast going by sharing it with your friends. Please consider downloading, subscribing, and especially reviewing the podcast at iTunes. We would love to have you write a review. We are also developing a more concrete way you can support our efforts here, so stay tuned for more details in future episodes. So how about you, John? I've heard you've been on the road. I have. It's been a busy speaking schedule outside of Messiah College for me with the release, the recent release of Was America Founded as a Christian Nation, and a revised edition. I've been asked to speak at some places there. Still doing some talks on the American Bible Society book, The Bible Cause, which came out in April. Uh, so this past weekend, long weekend, I was in East Tennessee at a school I'd never heard of before called Lincoln Memorial University in the Cumberland Gap. They have an like, incredible library and collection devoted to Abraham Lincoln. And then I just got back early this morning from the Boston area, Quincy, not Quincy, Quincy, as they told me. Uh, I was giving a talk up at Eastern Nazarene University on, on the role of history. So it's been busy, and I got a few more few more scheduled here in the next couple months. So what do we have on tap for episode 11? Well, today we are tackling the subject of historical biography. But first, we have our first sponsor. Uh-oh. Today's episode is brought to you by the word of the day, hagiography. <laughs> hagiography which is an idealized biography, such as those written about saints or founding fathers. That's our word for the day. So is there going to be like a, a horn that goes off or a bell whenever the word hagiography is used? Or? Yeah, it's like Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse. You have to scream at the word of the day. So joining us today is Anne Little. 
She's a historian at Colorado State University. She's the author of The Wonderful Abraham in Arms, a book included on my comps list, by the way, along with the just-released The Many Captivities of Esther Wheelwright. She has also earned a reputation as a leading historian in the public through her wonderful blog, Historian, which is dedicated to history and sexual politics. Her blog can be found at Historian, that's historian spelled with two N's at the end, dot com, and her Twitter account, at Historian, is also well worth a follow. Yeah, I've been reading Historian for a long time. I think she got she was in the blogging business before I am. It's a wonderful read. The amazing thing about Historian is the comment section because she gets so many historians commenting. Sometimes the comments are actually I mean any disrespect to Anne's posts, but sometimes the comments are actually better than the original post. We were going to have Anne talk about Historian here at the blog, but then I read her book this weekend. I actually mentioned this during the interview as well, and I realized there's so much to talk about in the many captivities of Esther Wheelwright that we needed to devote the entire interview to discussing it. I have to say, I think this book is going to go down as one of the most important early American biographies written in a long time, especially for those of us who are growing tired of biographies being written about the same founding fathers over and over mm-hmm. again. And, I, you know, at least for me, it belongs on any shelf next to Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's A Midwife's Tale about the New England midwife Martha Ballard or John Sinsback's Rebecca's Revival about the transatlantic life of former Caribbean slave and Moravian evangelist Rebecca Proton. And I know that you have some thoughts on biography as well, John, as someone who's written a biography yourself. So take us away with today's story. Recently, a fellow historian writing about my book, The Way of Improvement Leads Home, called it a, quote, deeply sympathetic portrait of the Presbyterian Tudor and Revolutionary War chaplain Philip Vickers Fithian, unquote. Well, I was flattered by the attention this historian gave to my biography of Fithian. I must admit I had an initial negative reaction to the words, quote, deeply sympathetic portrait, unquote. While I generally liked Philip Vickers Fithian and could relate to his life as a first-generation college student trying to navigate the tensions between a cosmopolitan education and the sense of rootedness that only came through an attachment to home, I wondered if I was too sympathetic to Fithian and his story. Did my sympathy cloud my historical judgment? Did I write with enough critical distance? Or did I seem like a Fithian fanboy? I can be pessimistic at times. I have been known to take a compliment, deconstruct it, and end up with thoughts that keep me up at night. In this particular case, my process of deconstruction made me think about one of my favorite historical essays, Harvard historian Jill Lepore's 2001 Journal of American History essay, Historians Who Love Too Much, Reflections on Microhistory and Biography. Lepore starts off the essay by describing herself sitting in a Massachusetts archive, lovingly stroking a piece of Noah Webster's hair. Yes, that is the same Noah Webster whose dictionary is on your shelf. She writes, In our everyday life, touching someone's hair is an incredibly intimate gesture, exchanged between besotted lovers, between doting parents and their milky newborns. And when I traded in my yellow call slip for that swirl of ginger hair, I felt myself feeling closer to Webster than I have ever felt when reading even his most personal papers. (laughs) 
that lifeless, limp hair had spent decades in an envelope, in a folder, in a box, on a shelf. But holding it in the palm of my hand made me feel an eerie intimacy with Noah himself. And, against all logic, it made me feel as though I knew him, and even less logical, liked him just a bit better. I do not have a lock of Philip Vickers Fithian's hair to stroke. And even if I did, it would have been weird. But as I wrote this biography, I did struggle with how close I was getting to Philip. This is probably why the historian's comment that my biography was deeply sympathetic struck a nerve in me. He said that my biography was not just sympathetic, but deeply sympathetic. Doesn't this border on hagiography? Deeply sympathetic? And then there was the historian who reviewed my book and called Fithian, quote, an insufferable prig and schlemiel, unquote. I'm still not sure what prompted this historian to resort to name-calling. I've never read a review of a biography in which a historian had such choice words for the book's subject. As I read this review over and over again, I got defensive. I was not defensive about the quality of my work. The review was quite positive. But I found myself feeling defensive for Philip. How dare this historian describe him this way? I felt like I needed to defend a friend from a bully. I had spent a lot of time with Philip in writing his biography, and I did not like seeing him pushed around this way. I don't know if I will ever write another biography. I would like to someday, but I don't have anything in the works or even on the horizon. In the meantime, I will keep thinking about how to balance love for subject and historical distance. Sometime shortly after The Way of Improvement Leads Home appeared in print, someone who knew me well said they thought the book could be read as an autobiography of the author. That explains a lot. We are very excited today to have as our guest on The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, uh, Professor Ann Little. Ann Little teaches history at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, and she is the author of an excellent new book titled The Many Captivities of Esther Wheelwright. We are going to be talking about that book with Ann today. Ann, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks, Drew. It's great to be here. Great. Well, we got a lot of things to talk about. Um, I said before we came on that we were going to split Anne's time between the book and her equally incredible blog, Historian. But there was just so much in the book uh, that I thought we would just devote the entire interview to the discussion of the book. And we'll, we'll, we'll plug the website as well. But tell us a little bit. Most of our listeners have never heard of Esther Wheelwright. Uh, who was she? You know, give us some give us some bio. You know, on this 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 amazing woman you've written about. Well, that's exactly why I wanted to write this book. Is I wanted to let as many people as possible know all about her. She has a pretty incredible story. She's born a little Puritan girl in early Massachusetts. At the age of seven, she's taken captive by the Wabanaki, who keep her for about five years. And then somehow, we don't really know exactly how, she appears over the border in Quebec City 
living in the governor's mansion, and then within a couple of months, she's enrolled in the Ursuline Convent School at the age of 12, going on 13. Now, that is a remarkable story enough, right? The story of a little girl and young woman who lives in all three major North American cultures in the 18th century. But what makes Wheelwright especially fascinating and significant, I think, is that she rises through the ranks of the Ursuline Convent as a choir nun, that is one of the higher status nuns, and she eventually is elected Mother Superior of her order the year after the British conquest. And she leads her order successfully through the perilous years between 1759 and 1774, before the passage of the Quebec Act says that there can be such a thing as a Roman Catholic and British colony, right? For 15 years, Roman Catholics in New France, in Quebec anyway, didn't know if they'd be permitted to worship their religion, to keep their religion at all, um, or even to have a priest. So she leads her convent successfully through this perilous passage and then dies towards the end of the American Revolution in 1780. So for, for both her achievements in leadership and, I would argue, a, a kind of very skilled form of, of politics that she practiced within the convent, in addition to her living in three major North American cultures and knowing very intimately those cultures, the language, the religious practices, the cultural values. I, I think she, she led a remarkable life and more people should, I, I hope through my book, will know about her. Yeah, there's so many there's so many kind of storylines and avenues of interpretation in her life. I mean, you're doing you're doing women's history, you're doing religious history, you're doing sort of, you know, this hashtag I've seen on Twitter, the vast early America, so you're talking about the sort of border crossings both both in some ways uh, geographically, but also metaphorically, border crossings. Uh, we can we'll get into that with some of the questions. But how did you find? A, how did you hear about Esther Wheel? Right? How did you uncover her? How did you get interested in, in her? And what made you think she would be a good subject for a biography? Well, I came across her when I was researching my first book, Abraham in Arms, and really kind of at the very beginning of research for that book. And I thought to myself, huh. This is somebody with a truly remarkable story, one that, as you suggest with your last comment, John, her life engages so many of the important themes that historians are interested in right now. Why didn't I know about her already? I went to Penn uh, and before that Bryn Mawr College and studied early American history and women's history in both places, and I'd never heard of her. So I think that says a lot about the priorities of the historical profession even now, right? Even 40 or 50 years into the this, this second wave women's movement and the important changes that's made in the way that uh, historians do their work. But clearly, I don't think there, there have been enough changes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The title of the book is The Many Captivities of Esther Wheelwright. Uh, tell me about that phrase, many captivities. You know, it, it's, it's a very loaded phrase uh, in a good way. Uh, it's, it's, it's very complex because it has multiple meanings, as I read the book at least. Tell us about that phrase, the many captivities of Esther Wheelwright. Well, you know, the title of this book, it was, it was very slow in coming to me. I, I pretty much had to write the entire book before I came up with the title. All, all along while I was writing the book, I was working on this notion of the experience of captivity as being a useful metaphor, not just for individuals who are victims of the 
borderlands warfare and the practice of taking captives in that war, in those wars, but rather that captivity could be seen as a metaphor for understanding the lives of girls and women throughout early North America more generally. And I think you're right to read my book to, to see that there are sort of many ways of thinking about captivity and about the experience of captivity. But I guess what I would say is that in, in each phase of her life, in every location and culture that she lives in, there are opportunities that she enjoys, there are some liberties, but also some restrictions. There are borders, there are walls, there are items of clothing. There are, there are all kinds of restrictions on her life. And I think it's kind of an interesting and cool theme to think about as we follow Esther from life in Puritan New England to life among the Wabanaki during Queen Anne's War, and then finally inside the, the stone walls and the iron gates of Quebec City, and inside within that, the, the, the Ursuline convent of Quebec City. Sure. Um, let, me, let me follow up. Speaking of this idea of, of captivities, uh, you seem to suggest... Uh, and again, I love the way you handle religion in the book. Uh, oh, you, you, you. Yeah, good. You seem to suggest that, that Wheelwright's Catholicism in some way sort of held her captive. But then I think you just kind of mentioned this. At other times, you describe her, her, her Catholicism uh, as sort of liberating to her. And I'm, I'm particularly thinking about your discussion of the Catholic practice of is it fair to call it bodily mortification, you know, where, where, they, where they would, um, uh, you know, to, to some extent punish themselves as a means of kind of, you know, experiencing the sufferings of, say, Christ on the cross or something like that. There's one part in the book where you say, quote, perhaps we should think about mortification and suffering less as a denial of pleasures than as an affirmation or embrace of something of value. And I love the fact that you are, are, you know, it would be easy to get presentist on the whole kind of mortification and suffering theme, but you clearly want to try to understand these concepts from uh, the perspective of Esther. So as a modern woman, and especially someone who does uh, women's history, was that a hard sentence to write, I guess is what I'm asking. You know, to what extent was there a struggle, I guess, and forgive me for the length of this question, but the struggle between being a modern woman, a woman's historian, doing women's history in a kind of secular age, and then also trying to empathize, though, with the experience of Esther? I hope that question makes sense. It absolutely does make sense. It really wasn't difficult at all for me to write about there being a kind of liberty or liberation within Catholicism. I do see, I don't see, I, I have to say, I'm a little surprised to hear you describe my version of her praying as a Catholic and becoming a nun as a kind of constraint or a captivity. I mean, I guess it is in the very literal sense that she becomes a cloistered nun. But I actually think there's a, there's a lot of liber, liberty that the women within the convent enjoy in, in part because they're cloistered. In addition, and not just in terms of thinking in secular ways, like, well, they can have jobs, they can exert leadership and, you know, you know uh, have, have an opportunity to use all of their skills possible in ways that would not have been possible for most French-Canadian bon femme, right? Most, the, you know, that's the French version for good wife. But I would say that in terms of the bodily mortification, we've known for 30 or so years that girls 
are very punishing of their own bodies, right? When I was growing up, and maybe you too were growing up in the 1980s, eating disorders were all the rage. And now, you know, there's a lot of young people who intentionally harm themselves right, by right. cutting their bodies. So I think, I think that this, this habit of bodily mortification is, is in many respects very modern. And it does reflect, I think, among kids today, among young women today especially, a kind of frustration with their bodies being in the world and on display and the pressures that are put on their display. So, so actually, it was, it was a very comfortable sort of feminist uh, space for me to swim sure. around in thinking about mortification practices. Yeah, I was, I was thinking too about, and I don't have the exact part of the, uh, I don't have the exact quote in front of me. When you talk about her, and I'm, I'm not going to get the name right here, the kind of the kind of ceremony she went through in which she put on the uh, habit and the wimple and sort the of clothing ceremony. the clothing ceremony. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe I read too much into this. It sounded as if, you know, this was, you know, for you, you kind of played with this. You kind of said it's for some, this was a, a might seem as a limiting thing, but for her, it was a very kind of uh, almost liberating thing to put on these constraining clothes and so forth. So that was the kind of theme I was getting at there with this. I think it's, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. I'm just trying to, trying to, the way you handled this, I'm just trying to translate this for our audience who, you know, who might think like, you know, how could mortification or how could wearing these nuns clothes be a liberating thing? And I, I want to, we're always trying to challenge our, our audience to think historically. And so I love the way you, you answered the question, even though you probably thought the question was a little strange coming from a fellow historian. <laughs> so, no, but, no, not at all. Yeah. And you're reading, you're reading my book exactly correctly. I do want to challenge people's preconceptions and assumptions, especially writing, you know, in English for an Anglophone audience. I, I think that there's still a great deal of anti-Catholicism or reflexive condescension towards Catholics that informs or, shall I say, infects a lot of the American historical profession. So I also think that feminists will clearly recognize the, you know, the debates, for example, going on around Muslim women and head coverings and their garb, right? Not just in France, but also in the United States, too. And I, I think maybe looking at 18th century nuns is a somewhat less threatening way maybe for Westerners to think about the ways in which covering one's body can be experienced and understood by those covering up as a kind of liberation. No, that, yeah. that is very interesting, the comparison with Muslim women especially. And, and Muslim women in kind of Christian environments, there's been a few sort of celebrated cases or maybe not so celebrated cases in which women who teach at sort of church-related schools have, have run into problems for wearing hijabs. But we won't get into that. But that's a great historical context there for that. So, so yeah, I appreciate that comparison. Drew? Yeah, I also, I mean, you bring up captivity in a in a kind of creative sense, but if we can transition to a, a context in which captivity would have been very clearly understood as such by um, contemporary, uh, especially contemporary English colonists, I do want to ask you about Esther's experience living with the, the Wabanaki, and how did that inform her or perhaps parallel her decision to become a woman religious or nun? Well... As you probably picked up on in the book, there are a lot of fascinating parallels, I think, in terms of how both Wabanaki and French-Canadian gender operate. For example, 
Uh, the Wabanaki are women who practice menstrual seclusion, which I don't know if you or your listeners have heard of this before, but menstrual seclusion is the practice of women retreating from life in the community during the, during the duration of their menstrual periods, in which it's considered unclean or unsafe for them to touch food or to have contact with anybody, especially young warriors preparing to go to war. I actually just taught menstrual seclusion today in my uh, introduction to Native American cultures class. So, yes. Fantastic. Okay, great. I'm glad you're so down with you know all this period history. Um, <laughs> you, you're, you're the first two men to ask me about uh, this this question, so I'm just going to press on ahead. But for example, so 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 when she moves into New France and is living in Quebec City, the notion of retreating into an all-female convent, first as a student, and then, of course, she wants to stay as a choir nun. I think that that's, I think that would have looked very familiar to her, very congruent, and would have made sense to her in a way that perhaps it might not have for, for example, English girls coming from England or straight from New England who had not had the opportunity to live among Catholic Wabanaki. So that's one, that's one comparison. Let me, let me see, I think I, I think definitely the, the emphasis that Wabanaki women put on creative artistry is something that was very was also something that the Ursuline nuns did. The Ursulines are famous, probably more familiar to your listeners as teachers. Some of them might have gone to Catholic schools or even Ursuline all girls schools where they were taught by Ursuline nuns. But many people don't realize the extent to which the Ursulines of Quebec were also fantastic artists. They were, were master embroiderers working with very difficult and expensive gold and silver wire threads, making beautiful copes and chasubles and mantle uh, decorations for the, for the altar, altar cloths, as well as engaging in all kinds of gilding. They were, they were very involved in gilding everything within their chapel and in other chap chapels around Quebec City. They also were very skilled at painting and drawing. And so the, the image of Esther Wheelwright that's on the cover of my book, Anne Bentley at the Massachusetts Historical Society, uh, believes, and, and I, I trust her judgment, that it was probably uh, painted by one of the talented but still rather amateur painters within the Ursuline convent. Yeah, so th those are just two examples of the ways in which I think life among Wabanaki Catholic women would have, uh, that, that, that life within the Ursuline convent would have, seen, would have seemed to her quite familiar rather than foreign. Sure, yeah, and you set that up really well. It, it comes across very clear how you're trying to show some of the similarities you know we're, we're so focused on differences when we think about Wabanaki culture and say uh, you know Catholic culture in Canada so so I think the parallels there offer a kind of unique perspective now Esther's Esther's living in the convent for 40 years plus in Quebec. She's, she now speaks French. Again, she's in the convent. She's holding leadership positions in the convent, which you've, you've talked about. Esther, though, through much of her sort of career, if you want to call it that, in the convent, is portrayed by the people around her and even, you know, by the, by the fellow nuns, but also by others outside the convent as, as a New Englander. She can never quite shake that New England identity. And you make it clear that 
that this this New England identity from the wheel, you know, the the wheelwright family in what today is Maine, you know, plays different roles in her life as she moves through her experience in the convent. Talk about the persistence of her New England identity as she's you know embracing this long life in a in a kind of French Catholic world. By the time she's elected Mother Superior in 1760, and that's when the accusations of her being étrangère really ramp up, and I think where there's a lot of um, hostility that ends up getting expressed in ways that are recoverable to us in the 1760s by some of her fellow nuns who are perhaps rivals for her position of authority and power. I don't know if it's so much a persistence of her New England identity as it is just her not being, as her being foreign. That's that's the translation of étrangère, you know, that she's a stranger, she is a foreigner. Okay. At, at first, well, but but it is connected to the wheelwrights, right? As, as you very correctly perceive, playing on her New England family and connections is something that can benefit her in the convent, right? Because everybody else in that convent, every at least I should say, everybody else who's a teacher or who's performing the apostolic labor of that order, um, you know, in, in art and in teaching, the higher status nuns, the choir nuns, that is, every one of the, her peers is the daughter of a colonial officer or of a governor or of intendants. Right, right. Everybody else is a very wired in, very connected member of this small um, you know, number of aristocratic families in New France. And who is she? She's nobody from nowhere. As, as the governor of New France calls her at some point, the daughter of a governor of a very small place. <laughs> and, and that's probably a wildly exaggerated notion of, of where she comes from in any case. But, you know, so she's, she's able to use that visit that she gets from her nephew in the early 1750s when he's on his diplomatic mission and he you know very correctly and shrewdly perceives that bringing gifts to her especially sort of high status gifts like silver and beautiful things are going to play well for him and, and that's something that she's able to take advantage of so the the Ursuline's interest in in calling her English I think is really in the service of scrubbing her free of her Wabanaki identity because she comes to them as a 12-year-old, she's probably not still in deerskins and, and bear grease at that point because she has been living in right. the governor's home along with this sort of motley cast of prisoners and traveling soldiers and diplomats that, that are always in the Chateau Saint-Louis. But So she's probably brought to them looking like a French-Canadian girl, but she probably is just beginning to speak French with, and she probably has a very heavy Wabanaki accent. She may still have Wabanaki manners which would be very familiar to the Ursulines of turn of the century, turn of the 18th century Quebec, because they were still heavily involved in teaching and evangelizing to Wabanaki and Huron and Iroquois girls there. But they were very interested in, especially when she made her interest clear in staying in the convent and the quality of a choir nun, they were very interested in distancing her from her having lived among the Wabanaki. And so calling her English and calling her Esther English is the I think the quickest and easiest way for them to do that? Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Again, this kind of border crossings and identity issues. Um, let's shift gears a little bit and and talk about 
uh, this sort of art of doing biography. Actually, our episode for this uh, podcast is on biography. So you write in, in your introduction that the subjects of most biographies in any national history are men. Elaborate on that statement. You know, why is it why is it that the lives of men have been more prone to sort of biographical exploration than the lives of women? Help for those who for those who maybe haven't thought about this question in any uh, depth. Uh, why is this the case? Well, I'll just put on my hat from 1947 and say, well, you know what what historians of the past would have said. This is what they said to women who, as they began to re-enter the profession again in the 1960s and 1970s, is, well, the reason that there is no women's history is that women have never done anything important, right? <laughs> women aren't the priests. Women aren't the military officers. Women aren't the presidents. Women aren't the business owners and the inventors and the entrepreneurs. Women have never done anything important. I guess I've been especially persuaded by the analysis of a historian named Bonnie Smith, who wrote a book now nearly 20 years ago called The Gender of History, which every time I read it and then reread it with my graduate students, as I do every couple of years, I'm just blown away by her insight. Um, and really, it's a, it's a very bleak view of the historical profession. That is to say, the practice of history in since it's become professionalized in the last 150 years or so. And she makes the case, I think, very strongly and very persuasively that that because history grew up alongside the nation states in Europe in the uh, early to mid 19th century, it, its bias is towards the masculine, both, both in terms of what it sees as appropriate and worthy historical subjects, as well as who it sees writing worthy and important history. That both historians and their subjects must necessarily be men. As, as one of the, the Childcraft Encyclopedia volumes was one of my favorite okay. back in the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you ever remember those or had those. I do. Yeah, I do. My, 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 one of my favorite volumes was called Great Men and Famous Deeds. <laughs> and I think that really says a great deal about the biases that still propel our profession. One of the things that I do, and in my um, early Republic class that I teach here at Messiah College, is I show them, we don't read Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's Midwife's Tale, but I actually show them the documentary movie or film. And in one of those, in one of those scenes where they show Laurel Thatcher, it might be Laurel, or or maybe there's a scene of an archivist, and Laurel's talking over the, you're doing the voiceover, saying, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, people don't, write a lot of women's biography is because the, the sources are limited, right? You know, I, think, I think Laurel says, you know, if you go into the archives and look for women, you're not going to find much, you know, she says. Do you, uh, let me, talk to me a little bit about the kind of limited sources at your disposal when writing this book. There are a lot of things about Esther's story that we just don't know. There's gaps, there's, you know, and, and you acknowledge those gaps. You don't pretend they don't exist or, you know, try to make something up. Obviously, you don't want to do that, but you just say, and at this point, you know, there's nothing else we really know in depth about this long period of time in her life. Can you talk about the challenge you faced in writing with such limited source material about Esther's life and how you were able to construct such a, a, a wonderful and compelling narrative with, you know, 
getting getting the most out of the sources that you did have. Tell us a little bit about that practice of writing women's biography. I think that Merle Ulrich and you are quite correct that it's just really damn hard sometimes to write about women, especially plebeian women or working class or middling women like Esther Wilwright who don't have a great deal of traditional historical sources left behind. They don't generate a great deal of traditional historical sources. It's so much easier and relaxing, I'm sure, to pull down a volume of the papers of John Adams off the shelf and just start writing. I, I mean, you know, John Adams tells you the whole story of his life. How, how hard is that? But no, Esther Wilwright, we have very little in her own hand. I think three of the four letters I have in her own hand are, are convent business. We have one letter that was preserved by the convent, uh, although unfortunately not in her own hand. I'm a little suspicious about that, but it, it, it is a letter to her mother, um, a 1747 letter that mother writes to tell her that her father has died. And her mother asks her at the age of 51 to come back home, <laughs> which is touching in a way, but also a little delusional. So Esther Wheelwright writes her mother in the, in the mode of a middle-aged, confident uh, teaching none and says why you know I've got you know I, I, I enjoy practicing faith of our ancestors here I'm confident about where I'm going in the afterlife and I hope to see you there but of course the implication is that I probably won't because you're a heretic of course you're a Protestant right, right. Um, and I <laughs> so love that I love that exchange that the way you you unpack that that letter because you almost get the impression right you know Puritans are have so dominated the historical narrative you know for for early Americanists for so long you know Perry Miller and so forth but you almost get the you know as, as, a, as a person of actually who's a person of faith myself you know to me it just seemed as if you know Esther was the much more deeply spiritual uh, <laughs> person in those letters than, than her mother was, for, or the way at least you portrayed her mother in some ways. So I, I love that. I love those letters. Uh, well, she really speaks as if, you know, she speaks in this very deeply spiritual language about her, about heaven and so forth. Well, and she should be, right? Because she's right. been a nun at that point for nearly 40 years. I mean, you know, she was a 14, 15-year-old girl when she made her announcement that she wanted to stay in the convent. So yeah, so she's, she's been in the, in the convent for 35, 36 years. She should be, you know. She is the the, the much the the person who who has been praying the hours for all of those years, right? Her mother, and I mean no disrespect to Mary's Nell Wheelwright. I think right. her mother was a very devout woman. I also think her mother still was still mourned the loss of Esther. She was a, a the Wheelwrights were fortunate in that they had, I think, eleven children total. All of them survived except the last two who died very young. So there might have been some disability or genetic issues related to advanced maternal age in the case of the last two children born. But all of their eldest nine children, I think it's nine, lived to adulthood. And all but Esther, of course, had children. Esther did not have children, <laughs> being a, a, a choir nun. Um, if she did, that might have even been a more interesting story, right? <laughs> yeah, I, and I do write about There that. was a rumor, that's right, yeah. Um, I don't think much of it, but, but um, that, that is a rumor that has been circulating since, what would it be, 1710, so okay. <laughs> one, one has to address it. But no, the, the challenges in writing this biography, I mean, she, because she never comes back to New England, she never writes a captivity narrative. 
She never writes anything autobiographical that's been preserved. The, the Ursuline convent writes a couple of different versions of her biography, just very brief impressionistic versions of her biography, both when they're taking her in and describing her kind of life story up to the point where she becomes a nun, and then they kind of recapitulate a lot of that when she dies 70 years later in, the, um, in her official obituary in the convent records. But that's really about it in terms of traditional historical sources. Oh, I, I've seen the baptismal record where she got baptized in the, in the Wells Church as a little Puritan child. But really, I had to kind of, I mean, and I don't want to upset your, your listeners by saying this, but I had to make up a lot of her biography. Sure. I had to go to sources that recorded the experiences of other children and young people like her. Like, for example, the, in the Jesuit relations, the Jesuits love writing about how devout the English captive children are. And, you know, she worked with a couple of missionaries, Jacques and Vincent Bigot, who write, both of them write a number of letters for the Jesuit relations. But frustratingly for me, maddeningly for me, she, they never write about her specifically. They never mention her by right, name. Right. They, never take, they never suggest that they think it, that she's at all special, which is kind of interesting to me. And it, it kind of helped convince me that, that, you know, although I have a lot of problems with the heroic mode of biography, that I think she really was an extremely capable intelligent and shrewd person from a very young age and I think that's what helped ensure her survival as a child but also what helped her distinguish herself among uh, even her native French Canadian peers in the convent when you know at the time of the British invasion when leadership skills were really at a premium. I just wanted to say as someone who works in 18th century American Indian biography or I mean not exclusively but someone who tries to uncover the voices of individuals I obviously resonate with the struggle that you have as you try to piece together these stories and then have to make and I wouldn't say make up but make very educated and informed uh, conjecture as to what that expanded biography may look like so I, I mean I definitely resonate with that struggle well, there's always there's always some kind of act of the imagination, right, in in writing any kind of history. So, you know, maybe the the sort of imaginative dimensions of your historical writing on a subject like this might be might be needed more than say if you were just pulling the Adams papers off the shelf. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's there's so much more we could talk about this book. I, I recommend everyone who's listening, if you want a fascinating read, if you're, uh, I think you t- you recently tweeted something, and I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up. I'm I'm gonna paraphrase it, but it was something like, why read a biography of the same person over and over and over again? Why don't you read a biography of someone you don't know anything about? And that would Esther Wheelwright, your, your, the many captivities of Esther Wheelwright would definitely fall into that category. If you are a historian, I mean, it's also a great sort of model of how to do this kind of biography that we're talking about. But even if you're just a, a kind of lay reader of history, this is an excellent excellent story that you should be aware of especially all those high school teachers out there who are uh, who listen to the podcast you know get a hold of this book it's a it's a it's a very fast read it's written very well and and i think it will provide some insight into uh, your early american courses that you're teaching and offering a much 
much very different perspective, not only in terms of geography, but also in terms of the kind of actors that you want to include in your in the stories you tell about the past and in the stories you teach about the past. So, Anne, thanks for taking some time out there in Fort Collins. Or are you in Greeley today? I'm um, in Greeley. Thanks for being with us, and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. This has been so much fun. It was a real privilege to have Anne on the show. I, I love this biography. I, I'm serious about what I said. It's not a. It's not only a book that's going to appeal to scholars, but it has an amazing crossover appeal. And and there are, there are people who are going to enjoy this book who just enjoy reading good history. So I encourage you to go out there, get on Amazon, get a copy of the many captivities of Esther Wheelwright. And Drew, I know you were extremely happy to have Anne on. You're such a fanboy, you know, as a as a Native American historian yourself. Um, you know, I was, I was kind of rolling my eyes as you were talking, you know, talking to Anne about, uh, especially afterwards, we talked to her a little bit. Well, I, you know, I, I have to say, as a grad student, in my defense, as a grad student, <laughs> I need to take any opportunity I can to try to ingratiate myself with uh, leaders in the profession. But... Also, yeah, I just have to say, you know, I don't want to peer behind the curtain too much here, but as the producer, I, I had to send a number of correspondences back and forth with Anne, and I just have to say, she is so darn nice. I, it was not hard to to really make sure she got the praise that I think this book really deserves. She's a great historian. She's a great blogger, so please go check out that blog, historian.com. Follow her on Twitter. She really is a, a great example of what a great historian with a great ability to connect with a public can do. By the way, before we close, let's just say the word of the day. Should we say it together, Drew? One, two, three, hagiography. There's our word of the day here at the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. And with that in mind, we will bring the show to an end. Drew, uh, good to be with you again. Michaela, thanks for all your hard work. And for you, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios at WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Ann Little. Our studio producer is Michaela Mummert. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermling, and your host is John Fia. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.